0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for Book 10, Chapter 8 of Bottom Books. Apparently, and thank you Acoustic Eels for pointing this out, we, apparently we only have five chapters left of this book, which is a bit of a surprise to me. I know I knew we were coming up to the end, but structure-wise, story-wise, it doesn't feel like we're at the end of a book. Like It, it to me, feels like there could be a whole other adventure about to happen in this book. It's been a weird plot. Uh, apologies if I f- sound out of breath more than usual. Um, I think this kind of post-COVID phase is... I don't know what's going on, but I'm constantly feeling like I'm puffing. So that's probably going to come through the microphone. Anyway, we need to figure out what we're going to do next. There was talk about moving away from novels and doing the Oxford Book of English Verse, which is in, on Hemingway's list. Do some poetry. There was also talk of me having a little sabbatical. I don't know if I... If I was going to do that, I would just say something like, you know, having a week off. One week off or something like that, and then we'll go into the Oxford Book of Verse. But I'm not sure how everyone feels about that. I don't even know how I feel about that. Um, But we've got five days to figure that out, I suppose. But I reckon, and I apologize for not doing a vote this time around, but we did discuss it, and it seemed like most people were keen to um, move on to the English book book of English verse, the Oxford book of English verse, so I think we should do do that. Now, the version I'm going to use is the old version, which is on Gutenberg um, for free, so you can read it online for free via Project Gutenberg. Um, It's the original version of it, there's an updated version where I guess they changed some of the poems or added more, but... uh, I think for simplicity, we use the free online version, that way we can all get it, we can all be sure we're reading the same one. If you want to read a different version, the new, the newer version, uh, you can, but some of the poems might not line up with the daily readings. Okay, so we got to make a call one way or the other which version we're going to read, and all the way through this, this project, um, for the sake of the podcast, I've been leaning towards the public domain versions, so we're going to do that again in this case and use the original. Um, So, the other thing I like about that is on the Gutenberg version, it starts with a table of contents, and it's broken up nicely by, uh, it goes in chronological order, so we start with the oldest poems and move forward, but they're also grouped by the author. And I think if we just go by those groupings of author, so sometimes there might be, you know, seven poems by one of the authors, and then the next day they might the next author might only have one poem featuring in the book, and it'll give us that varied length, you know, some days it'll be a really short reading, some days it'll be a bit of a longer reading with five or six poems, um, but I think, you know, we don't want to go one poem at a time, because there's thousands of poems in this book. We'll, we'll be there forever. It will literally take several years. <laughs> or at least more than a year. Um, so, uh, even if we go by author, like I was saying, it's still going to take probably two or three months to get through this book. There's also talk about breaking this book in half so we don't get poetry fatigue We're moving over to poetry to get rid of our novel fatigue, but reading, you know, a thousand poems near enough uh, in a row, yeah, I mean, that's pretty fatiguing in itself. So maybe we read halfway, then we read another book, and then we continue. What we can do, though, is figure that out later, you know. I think it's fair to say the next book we're going to read will be the... Oxford Book of Verse, Um, the only questions we need to figure out in the next five days, are we going to take a little break before it, and are we going to take a break in the middle of it, we need to figure that out before we get to the middle of it, cool, alright, I've rambled on enough about that. I will put a reply to that effect to the forum that Acoustic Eels posted and see if everyone likes that idea, but um, failing that, I think we'll go forward with that as the plan, if everyone finds that agreeable. Part 10, Chapter 8 of Buddenbrooks. Tom, out. That is going to change the family dynamic. Indeed, says FDLP1. Does man have a Tolstoy fake Andre death in him. (laughs) You know, I kind of felt that as well, like maybe the doctor messed up his diagnosis and it's a really weird thing to die of, isn't it? Falling on your face after having a tooth not quite removed properly. Techrific says Christian can't believe it. Thomas dying before him. He had internal monologue before, but this actually makes me think Christian believes his own BS. Is there such a thing as an unaware hypercontract? And with his, you've won, I give up, Christian's sociopathy is confirmed for us. He's a complete narcissist. Such Success is everything. Who knew Christian was one of those zero-sum game people? I feel for him. What a miserable way to look at life. At your dead sibling. At your own existence. It's so sad. It's an unexamined life. A terrible waste. Swim, says the mummofishi, says, I feel like all the siblings' lives are terrible wastes. Tony, so preoccupied with the book's status, Christians' wasted talent, Tom's emptiness and ign- in ignoble death. All their lives feel unexamined and they didn't exact adapt. To look at it more broadly, all of Lubeck's past society is constrained by strictures they cannot break out of. Those who do are successful. It's all so depressing. That's a good. Way to summarize it, isn't it? It's also depressing. Um, <clears throat> not a lot of sunshine in this book, you know, not a lot of happy moments. I see, as I say that, why it's called the decline of a family. It's not so much the decline financially, although it has been that, but I thought it was going to be a devastating decline in their wealth to the point where they are you know, poverty-stricken, but really, at the, at the end of the day, they're as posh as they were at the start, they're just a little strapped. Um, but it's more been the decline of their status and their happiness, I would say. Especially their happiness. Alright, let's move on and keep reading and finish this thing. Chapter 9. Senator Buttonbrook had died of a bad tooth. So it was said in the town... But goodness, people don't die of a bad tooth. He had had a toothache. Her Wretch had broken off the crown, and thereupon, the senator had simply fallen in the street. Was ever the like heard. But however it had happened, that was no longer the point. What had next to be done was to send wreaths, large expensive wreaths, which would do the giver's credit and be mentioned in the paper. Wreaths which showed that they came from people with sympathetic hearts and long purses, They were sent. They poured in from all sides, from organisations, from families and individuals, laurel wreaths, wreaths of heavy scented flowers, silver wreaths, wreaths with black bows, or bows with the colours of the city on them, or dedications printed in heavy black type, or gilt lettering, and palms, simply quantities of palms. The flower shops did an enormous business, not least among them being Ewersons. Opposite the Buddenbrook mansion, Frau Irison rang many times in the day at the vestibule door and handed in arrangements in all shapes and styles, from Senator this or that, or Consul so-and-so, from office staffs and civil servants. On one of these visits she asked if she might go up and see the Senator a minute. Yes, of course, she was told, and she followed Frau Pramanida up the main staircase, gazing silently at its magnificence. She went up heavily, for she was, as usual, expecting. Her looks had grown a little common with the years, but the narrow black eyes and the Malay cheekbones had not lost their charm. One could still see that she must must once have been exceedingly pretty. She was admitted into the salon where Thomas Buttonbrook lay upon his bier. He lay in the center of the large light room, the furniture of which had been removed, amid the white silk linings of his coffin, dressed in white silk, shrouded in the white silk, in a thick and stupefying mingling of odors from the tube roses, violets roses, and other flowers with which he was surrounded, at his head in a half-circle of silver candelabra, stood the pedestal draped in mourning, supporting the marble copy of Thorwaldson's Christ. The wreaths, garlands, baskets and bunches stood or lay along the walls, on the floor and on the coverlet. Palms stood around the bier and drooped over the feet of the dead. The skin of his face was upbraided in spots and the nose was bruised, but his hair was dressed with the tongs as in life and his moustache too had been drawn through the tongs for the last time by old Herr Wenzel, and stuck out stiff and straight beyond his white cheeks. His head was turned a little to one side, and an ivory cross was stuck between the folded hands. Frau Iwason remained near the door, and looked thence, blinking over to the beer, only when Frau Permanida in deep black with a cold in her head from much weeping came from the living room through the portieres, and invited Frau Iwason to, to come nearer, Did she dare to venture a little farther forward on the parquetry floor? She stood with her hands folded across her prominent abdomen and looked about her with her narrow black eyes at the plants, the candelabra, the bows and the wreaths, the white silk and Thomas Buddenbrook's face. It would be hard to describe the expression on the pale, blurred features of the pregnant woman. Finally, she said, yes, sobbed once, a brief confused sound, and turned away. Frau Pamanda loved these visits. She never stirred from the house, but superintended with tireless zeal, the homage that pressed about the earthly husk of her departed brother. She read the newspaper articles aloud many times in her throaty voice, those same newspapers with which, at the time of the jubilee, had paid tribute to her brother's merits, now mourned the irreparable loss of his personality, she stood at Goethe's side to receive the visits of condolence in the living room, and there was no end of these, their name was Legion. She held conferences with various people about the funeral, which must, of course, be conducted in the most refined manner. She arranged farewells, she had the office staff come in, a body to bid their chief goodbye. The workmen from the granaries came too, they shuffled their huge feet along the floor drew down the corners of their mouth to show their respect, and emanated an odour of chewing tobacco, spirits, and physical exertion. They looked at the dead, lying in the splendid state, twirled their caps, first admired and then grew restive, until at length one of them found courage to go, and the whole troop followed shuffling on his heels. Frappamanida was enchanted. She asserted that some of them had tears running down into their beards. They simply... This simply was not the fact, but she saw it and it made her happy. The day of the funeral dawned. The metal casket was hermetically sealed and covered with flowers. The candles burned in their silver holders. The house filled with people and surrounded by mourners from near and far. Pastor Pringsheim stood at the head of the coffin in upright majesty, his impressive head resting upon his ruff as on a dish. A high-shouldered functionality Functionary, sorry, A brisk, intermediate something between a waiter and a majordomo had in charge the outward ordering of the solemnity. He ran with the softest speed down the staircase and called in a penetrating whisper across the entry, which was filled to overflowing with tax commissioners in uniform and gain por- grain porters in blouse, knee breeches and tall hats. The rooms are full, but there is a little room left in the corridor. Then everything was hushed. Pastor Pringsheim began to speak. He filled the whole house with the rolling periods of his exquisite modulated sonorous voice. He stood there near the figure of Thorwaldson's Christ and wrung his hands before his face or spread them out in blessing while below in the street before the house beneath a white wintry sky stood the hearse drawn by four black horses with with the other carriages in a long row behind it A company of soldiers with grounded arms stood in two rows opposite the house door, with Lieutenant von Throtter at their head. He held his drawn sword on his arm and looked up at the bow window with his brilliant eyes. Many people were craning their necks from windows nearby, or standing on the pavements to look. At length there was a stir in the vestibule, and lieutenant's muffled words of command sounded. The soldiers presented arms with a rattle of weapons. Herr von Throtter let his sword sink, and the coffin appeared. It swayed cautiously forth on the house door, borne by four men in black cloaks and cocked hats, and a gust of perfume came with it, wafted over the heads of the bystanders. The breeze ruffled the black plumes on the top of the hearse, tossed the manes of the horses standing in a line down to the river, and dishevelled the mourning hat scarves of the coachmen and grooms. Enormous single flakes of snow drifted down from the sky in long slanting curves. The horses attached to the hearse, all in black trappings, so that one only their restless rolling eyeballs could be seen. Now slowly got in motion. The hearse moved off, led by the four black servants. The company of soldiers fell in behind, and one after another the coaches followed on. Christian Buddenbrook and the pastor got into the first. Little Johann sat in the second, with a well fed Hamburg relative, and slowly, slowly, with mournful long drawn pomp, Thomas Boddenbrook's funeral train wound away, while the flags at half mast on all the horse on all the houses flapped before the wind. The office staff and the grain porters followed on foot, the casket with the mourners behind followed the well known cemetery paths past Crosses and statues and chapels and bare weeping willows, to the Buddenbrooks family lot where the military guard of honor already stood, and presented arms again. A funeral march sounded in subdued and solemn strain from behind the shrubbery. Once more the heavy gravestone with the family arms in relief had been moved to one side, and once more the gentlemen gentlemen, sorry, of the town stood there on the edge of the little grove besides the abyss, walled in with masonry into which Thomas Buddenbrook was now lowered to join his fathers. They stood there with bent heads, those, these worthy and well-to-do citizens. Prominent among them were the senators in white gloves and cravats. Beyond them was the throng of officials, clerks, grain porters and warehouse labourers. The music stopped. Pastor Pringsheim spoke, while his voice raised in blessing, still lingered on the air. Everybody pressed around to shake hands with the brother and son of the deceased. The ceremony, the ceremony was long and tedious. Christian Buttenbrook received all the condolences with his usual absent, embarrassed air. Little Johann stood by his side in his heavy reefer jacket with the gilt buttons and looked at the ground with his blue-shadowed eyes. He never looked up but bent his head against the wind with a sensitive twist of all his features. That's the end of part ten. Alright, that's that. We'll start part eleven tomorrow. By the looks of things, very cool. Alrighty, that's that. Thank you very much for listening. See you tomorrow.